Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about open source sustainability for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Who is my lawyer? <laughs> who, who is my lawyer anyway? Very excited to have our guest on today. For those of you watching, yes, this is the first time we've tried to do a video podcast, which is kind of cool. Just thought it might be a fun idea. And so you already know who our guest is. Uh, I am, of course, Richard Litauer. I'm your host today. Very excited to be here. And we have Heather Meeker on. Heather, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's great to have you. I'm really excited to talk about the work that you've been working on because as well as being an awesome open source lawyer, you are an author of several books on open source, which is really, really great. One of them, I believe, just came out or will have come out a few months ago when this podcast is being listened to by you all. It's called From Project to Profit, and I'm very excited about it. Before we talk about it in depth, which is the point of this podcast, I want people to know who you are exactly. So I know that you're a lawyer. I know you went to Yale. I know you're one of the founding partners of OSS Capital and that you've received a ton of awards for being a prime mover in the space, for being the number one lawyer in all of the world. But like really actual cool awards. That one sounded a bit fake. You know, top 100 women lawyers in California, San Francisco Information IT, Law Lawyer of the Year in 2012, all sorts of things. Can you tell me what your practice looks like now? Who are you currently working with and what do you currently do? Right now, I'm trying to limit my practice to open source related matters. Uh, you know, I was a quote unquote big law lawyer for almost 30 years. And wow. About two years ago, I left my last last big law firm and uh, went out on my own. And part of the point of that, of course, this was during the depths of the pandemic. So everybody's making life choices then, right? And my life choice was to do just the work I wanted to do. You know, I'm Candidly would have been coming up on retirement soon, and I was thinking about that. But then I thought, well, you know, I don't have to stop. I can just stop doing the things that I don't prefer to do. And don't get me wrong, I loved my career, really, but I just wanted to focus on the things I liked most. So it's a long way of saying today I only work on open source related things as opposed to my broader practice in tech transactions and M&A and so forth. And then, of course, like everyone else, I got drawn into the, the AI stuff uh, earlier this year because people had recognized that a lot of the issues were very similar to the open source practice. And so I kind of got drawn into that as well. But I try to limit what I'm doing to open source today. So I have clients ranging from the smallest to the biggest, and I talk to them about all sorts of open source stuff, ranging from compliance to doing code releases to participating in foundations to starting whole businesses around open source, really a little bit of litigation support, really from soup to nuts. Amazing. Awesome. I'm really proud of you for making the jump to do only what you want to do. That's really awesome and lucky and cool. And I'm glad that yeah. it's open source. That's great. Most people who have a long, successful career in something that doesn't involve writing 
want to become an author and then find it's the last thing in the world they want to do. <laughs> Looking behind you, I'm seeing at least three <laughs> books up on the, up on the desk. So when did you decide that you wanted to take your your law practice and your your work and actually transform it into writing for the general public? I really started writing just as soon as I started practicing. I love to write. And particularly when I got interested in open source software licensing, there was not a lot out there to read about it. I, I found when I was trying to learn myself that most of what was out there was advocacy. So you yeah. would read about open source and it would be advocacy from open source advocates. Well, lawyers need something a little bit different. They need kind of more, I would say, objective analysis and more formal analysis of legal issues. So I started writing articles and so forth uh, starting in the late 1990s. And then in the early 2000s, I started collecting some of the stuff I was writing into a book about open source. So I put the book out. I put a few editions out. That was kind of an interesting journey. I started with a conventional publisher, which was Wiley. And then I yep. moved to self-publishing uh, after the first edition. Meanwhile, ha I had already written a tech licensing book because I was teaching a class in technology licensing. And I found that I couldn't find a textbook that I liked. So I wrote one. <laughs> and uh, again, using a lot of the stuff I had written and collecting it together, uh, for those of you who might want to go down this journey, the process of taking, say, 12 articles that you've written and collecting them into a book is more work than you would ever think possible. Because <laughs> look, you've already written it, right? But harmonizing them and organizing them, it's really a 90-10 rule. Uh, it, it really takes a lot of work. So in both for both the tech licensing book and the open source licensing book, that was a process I went through. It does sound like a lot of work. Every time I've tried to write a book, I failed miserably. So I understand that at least. You may be better Tell me about this newest. <laughs> Maybe it's possible. <laughs> I keep trying. I keep trying. Can you tell me about this new book that just came out? So from project to profit. A lot of people know my first open source book, which is open source for business. That's more about open source licensing. Yeah. Uh, and how to how to understand it in business from project to profit really came out of my work at OSS Capital, which I've been working with for about five years now. And I transitioned from a, uh, you know, an advisor to a full time GP at the fund. So I wanted to get down on paper because that's just the way I roll. Right? <laughs> I wanted to get down on paper my thoughts about why open source is an extremely useful vehicle for business. Because I, again, I was not seeing something that somebody could just take down and read about that. And I knew that many people were very interested in it. And it really centers around the question of people would come to me and say, how can you possibly make money with open source? You're giving things away. That doesn't make sense to me. So the book is really about explaining how that works, how you can give something away and still build a business around it. I like that. When you talk about a lot of people who are coming to you or a lot of people who are interested, 
where are you seeing these people talk? I talk to a lot of people here in this podcast. That's that's easy for me. But as a lawyer, I feel like you normally are talking to someone who needs something law written. But open source, a lot of the times they don't have the resources for that. So you can tell me what sort of people did you aim the book at and where did you find them? The book is aimed at developers or maybe entrepreneurs. And the reason okay. I, I say those differently is that a lot of companies, as you probably know, they're they're started by maybe one person who does the engineering and one person who does the business. It's not that they don't overlap, but that's a pretty common configuration for a startup business. So there are people who want to know about this who are entrepreneurs, sometimes serial entrepreneurs. And of yep. course, I have met a lot of those during my legal career. You know, I've worked with many business people and developers over the years who I was working with on a project when they were at, you know, one of my client companies, and then they decide they want to do their own business. And then they yeah. come back and they say, how do I go about this? I want to talk about this. But then also outside the context of, you know, my legal career, particularly having gotten involved with the fund, I now meet a lot more entrepreneurs who are at a stage in their sort of path that they haven't even talked to lawyers at all yet. So they're not talking to me as a lawyer. They're talking to me as a an investor and a business person. A lot of people just end up contacting me. It's one of the wonderful things about having written the original open source book is people just email me out of the blue and want to talk about what they're doing. And, and I love that. And I almost always talk to them. I don't, you know, it's not that I have to monetize every little bit of time that I spend with people. And by the way, that's kind of how open source works too. <laughs> Tell me how the book is broken up into parts. What are you focusing on in the book? Well, the first part of the book is a few case studies because I I felt like I was challenged to explain how this could possibly work. Right. So the first thing I do is say it's worked already. So we don't need to really talk about that question. And then I go into some kind of economic analysis of why it works. I once mm. upon a time knew something about economics because I actually, you know, that was my undergraduate degree. And I still kind of think in those terms. Uh, and then I go through at some length a lot of the business models that I see in commercial open source software development. There are many different kinds of business models, and I go through all of them, how they work from a licensing point of view, how they work from a sort of a 50,000 foot view business point of view. And then the last part of the book is kind of a checklist of, of issues, things that will come up. And then there's a literal checklist at the end of things that you need to do to set up a business around an open source project. Can you tell me about that checklist? That sounds really interesting because most open source projects don't succeed at that at all. And most of them probably aren't viable professionally. So yeah, how does that checklist work? <laughs> well, so uh, one of the initial decisions that someone has to make is that they actually want to run a business around an open source mm. project. And that's a non-trivial decision. So just to step back for a moment, a lot of projects never become businesses, nor should they, you know, because 
a lot of people start a project and it maybe it's a hobby or maybe it's something they really believe in. They want to make a community project. Maybe they're looking for government funding. Maybe they're looking for an academic project. And those are not businesses. The, the book is more to help people decide, do I want to start a business? And if so, then what's my game plan for going about it? And, you know, a lot of open source projects won't make good businesses, but I hope that the book helps people think critically. If they have a project and they love doing it and they think, I want to make this into my living, what, what is realistic? You know, is it is it realistic to think it will be a kind of venture-backed business that's going to grow? Should it remain a small business? You know, what what kind of decisions do you need to make about your goals? And once you've figured out, yes, I want to make this into a startup business of the classic kind with, you know, investors and growth and so forth, analyzing the kind of business and revenue models that you need in order to actually make it a viable business. Is your main suggestion then basically for open source projects that could become VC backed like businesses, or do you have suggestions that don't involve VC funding? I have some, some suggestions that don't involve VC funding. I'll, I'll give you kind of a, a general example. Okay. So I, like many people, am in a family that had a family business, right? So (laughs) those of us who have been there, particularly once you've had a little, a few years under your belt, you know that there are realistic expectations about what a family business can do. Actually, most of them don't survive the first generation and very few survive the second generation. But Hmm. when people think about family businesses, they think, oh, I should be able to make this into a big business. And then they start beating themselves up or making the wrong decisions to try to grow the business too much. Whereas it was really intended to be a vehicle for making a living and allowing someone to do what they loved. Okay. So open source can be kind of the same thing. You can have a, a project, you can love it. You can want to make a living providing support or professional services for somebody, maybe for you, maybe for you and a few of your friends, but that is not a a venture-backed business. It's not even a business where you're likely to take in professional investors of any kind. Maybe you get some money from your friends and family or something like that. But the point is, that's not a business to make money for its shareholders. That's a business to make money for the people who work there. And there's a huge difference between that kind of business and something that you're really going to grow. So the book talks about how to think about those goals a little bit and how to make sure that if you're if you're going to go the route of getting any kind of professional investor, that you you're a good candidate for that. Because if if you try to get professional investors and you're not a good candidate for that, then it's not going to work out well. So it's it's a framework for thinking about that. So in this podcast, partially because of the influence of Open Collective on Sustain, I mean, I used to work at Open Source Collective. We focused a lot on projects that are sort of community projects that then want to start being sustainable and want to start bringing in some money. And there's 
hasn't been a ton of discussion around how much money is actually worth bringing in and should it be something like a family business, right? Should it just be enough to help the maintainers continue to live their lives well and keep working on the project versus we need to grow the community. We need to make it a much bigger business that makes everyone be able to be paid. And there's definitely not a lot of, and then we need to go sign a multi-million dollar check with a Sequoia to make sure that they invest in the project. Do you have any sense of how many open source projects out there are run like your family business idea where there's just a couple of people who are are paid enough to continue working on it? Most of the small ones are. And that's that's how most of them start. You know, most of them are labors of love. And most projects, not all, most projects are started by people because they're trying to solve a pro- a, a problem yeah. for themselves. I mean, you look at some of the, actually some of the biggest like Git right was so was created by Linus Torvalds because he was trying to solve a problem for his existing project, which was Linux. I mean, you know, people usually do open source projects because they're trying to scratch an itch that they have. It's it's not yeah. usually something that people think, I'm going to make this into a huge business. Sometimes, but not always. But then once you do a code drop, you know, people start getting interested in it. You might think, hey, this might actually be a living for me. So what kind of living do I want it to be? And a lot of that depends on what, you know, the founder's personal desires are. It has a lot to do with, by the way, where a person is in his or her life, right? Because if you're, you know, if you're on the younger side and you really want to build something for yourself, that's when you can put the years of effort into building a business. It's a it's a huge commitment. No, but if this is just a side project for you and you're more comfortable getting a salary somewhere else, maybe you're further on in your career and you don't want to take as many risks, then it's not something you're going to build into a business, you know. And also, I should say that in the course of working at the fund, we've talked, of course, to hundreds of founders of open source projects. And candidly, not all of them are the right people to run any business, right? Because they're just, that's just not what they want to do. And it's clear to us, but it might not always be clear to them. You know, sometimes what people want to do is run a community, like a, a nonprofit. Maybe they want to be in academia or something like that. So that's not usually a situation where you go and you get a whole bunch of money from investors. So if sustainability for you is, I just want the project to keep on cooking along, then that's probably a different decision from I want to grow this into like the biggest business I can possibly grow it into because only the latter is likely to get you professional investors. I'm really curious about the fund. We haven't talked a lot about it on this podcast before. I think I might have had Joseph Jackson on the podcast. Can you talk a bit about how it works? Yeah, well, so first of all, you know, JJ started the fund and that was about five years ago when he asked me to be involved first. My initial reaction is, I don't know anything about finance. (laughs) I'm a (laughs) lawyer, you know, my specialty is open source software licensing. But it turned out that I had actually been spending a lot of quality time with my clients 
talking to them about how to build businesses around open source. So it turned out to be actually kind of a natural progression for me. But very quickly about the fund, we are pre-seed or seed stage fund. So very early, we're often helping form the companies that we invest in along with their founders. We only invest in commercial open source software development, nothing else. In that respect, we're probably unique as a, as a VC fund. There are other VCs who do invest in commercial open source businesses, but that's not their thesis. This is our thesis. We believe that this is the best way to run a business and the most economically sound way to run a business, which is a pretty radical idea, actually. And that's basically what JJ thought when he when he started the fund. And so we do seed stage investments and we're on our third fund now. We raise two funds, which are you know, fully invested at this point. We also have a, a program to do some kind of almost incubator-like funding, but that's it. You know, we're basically traditional VCs. It's just that we believe that open source is the best basis for a business. So when you are talking to prospective fundees, do you just hand them a copy of your book and say, read this first, then come back to me? Well, the book just came out, so no, but uh, <laughs> but that, that's just a flippant answer. No, so we actually will see a project we like and we'll go to the founders and say, have you considered starting a business? It's actually cool. quite different from the way VC normally works, which is you know, people pitch you and you, you know, and, and you, you wait for them to come to you right now, people are coming to us, but we also go and we find the projects we like, and we ask the founders, you know, what do you want to do about this? Are, are you, are you interested in this kind of a business or not? You know, sometimes they're not, that's fine, but we want to, we want to look at the best projects, the ones that have that are getting a good community going and that solve a, mar a market need that that we think is an interesting uh, market sector. So when you talk to projects that have a large community or have a good community going, I'm really curious what you address in the book around the topic of equitable payment for contributors. Because a lot of the issues with open source projects is once you start throwing money into the mix, it alienates some people. Right. So who, who gets the money? How do you decide whether, where the governance goes? How do you decide uh, how much money to get and who should be paid among all the contributors? So I'm curious what, how you address that topic. Well, one thing we do is I, I, I wouldn't say this is maybe a hundred percent rule, but if not, it's almost a hundred percent. We only want to fund companies started by the founders of the project. So effectively, what usually happens is there are one, two, three people who have started the project and they have done almost all the work. So we invest yep. in a company created by them and owned by them. And then when it comes to other contributors, they make the decision whether to bring them on professionally or, or not. As a matter of fact, in these kinds of projects and, and really lots of open source projects, many contributors contribute fairly small amounts. They're more like a community of users or developers and the kinds of things that they contribute are, well, I found this issue or 
here's a bug fix that I suggest. And people are not usually so concerned about being compensated for that because they get compensated because the product improves and they're using the product, right? And they're happy that they don't have to pay for maintaining the product. That's the important thing. It's like the, the quid pro quo, if there is one between contributors that are in the user community and the people running a company is that the company is putting massive resources and sweat equity into making the project better. And the mm. contributors will benefit from that. If you had a large contributor, if I were running one of our portfolio companies and I had a large contributor, I would probably pay them something either in money or stock because that would be the fair thing to do. But that's kind of a larger thing in software development anyway. You know, people are generally not going to make huge contributions to anything unless they get compensated. It's not so much because they're greedy. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. It's because they have, you know, realities that they have to meet in their life. And if they're spending a lot of time on something, then they have to be compensated so that they can have the time to spend on. So if that wasn't the tough part of the book, what was the toughest section to write? The toughest section to write was economic analysis because I had to, I had to kind of, you know, relearn some of the stuff that I learned a long, an embarrassingly long time ago. I actually called up one of my old professors to talk to him about it. And I drew some graphs, which is what I did most of when I was studying economics. I studied the very mathematical kind of economics when I was yeah. in college. So that required a lot of thinking. And I was also, that's the area where I was really concerned to get it right because you know, it wasn't just the kind of thing I talk about every day. It was kind of more of a deep analysis of it. So I I hope that that part is useful to people. I actually asked one of my editors, I, I employ professional editors when I do a book on my own. Do you think that this part is useful? Do you think it should be in here? Should I put it at the back for people who don't want to be bothered with it? Did it make sense? And she told me, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. So it stayed in there. So all of the supply and demand graphs are in there. Excellent. Were there any famous economists you mentioned in during that work, like Ostrom or Nash or something? No, no. This is just basic economic analysis. A lot of people think of it. So if you have a company that does, say, a community version and an enterprise version of a, of a product, which is very sure. common in commercial open source software development, a lot of people view those as substitute products. So if you look at it that way, then you've got community users and you try to convert them to paid users, right? Yeah. And people kind of understand that. But but then you're thinking you it, it is dangerous to start thinking about those two products as substitute products. I mean, they're kind of competing against each other. In fact, they're complementary products but they serve different purposes. The community the community version of your product, if that's the kind of business you're doing, it creates a lot of benefit for the community. It's marketing, it's good for your paid customers and so forth in various ways that the book discuss, discusses. And then there's a complementary product, which is the paid product, which is probably something you're only going to sell to certain kinds of customers. 
other people mm. are going to want to use the free one. But unless you look at them as compliments, you're going to start going down the wrong road. People complain to me all the time about companies taking code private. And when that happens, I think one of the things they're doing is they start thinking about the, the substitute mode, in, mode instead of the complementary mode, and they don't place enough value in what's happening in the community, which can be an extraordinarily powerful business tool for a company. That's a really interesting pitfall. Are there any others that jump to mind right now for things that people normally mess up on? Well, you know, there are a lot of things that startups mess up on that are not specific to open source. I mention a few of those in the book just so that, you know, for the sake of completeness. But I'll answer a question you didn't ask, if that's okay, cool. <laughs> um, which is people ask me all the time about companies that make decisions to take code private. So one of, I'll step back, one of the criticisms of private funding of open source projects is that- yep companies take the code private. So you see something like Elastic or HashiCorp or something like that. And yep. there's a lot of flack when companies do that. But, and I'm not I'm not calling out those particular companies. This, this is a phenomenon that happens. And, and when people see that phenomenon, they often say, this is because of capitalism. This is because this is a corporate open source project and we shouldn't have corporate open source projects. I think that's 100% wrong. What's happened there is that companies reach a stage of maturity where the investors don't care about the open source anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, they start engaging in what I think is often like questionable analysis about how to take their existing project or product and monetize it more as opposed to thinking about growing and creating more value, right? So this kind of get ba gets back to our fund. Like we are 100% aligned with our founders about open source. In fact, when we do funding, we require them to maintain the open source project. That's unheard of in VC, right? We, we, we have a literal contract with them that they cannot stop uh, maintaining their open source project. Whereas a lot of investors, like private equity investors, even when a company goes public, you know, the, the, the public company investors, they start thinking open source is leaving too much on the table. We need to claw that back. And we need to make more money on our existing project because we've got an opportunity cost there. That's not the way we think at all. The way we think is we want you to use open source in your business. We never want you to stop. Now, obviously, we'll get diluted out someday with some of the businesses. But what is happening when companies start clawing back and taking stuff out of open source and going private is that they have gotten, they have investors who are not aligned with the value of open source anymore. You don't think having misaligned investors is actually just part of capitalism in general? So it could actually be capitalism that is the problem? It could be, yeah. But on the other hand, I do think it's possible to run a business sustainably, create a ton of value with the open source project and never take it private. And the thing is that all of the angst that people experience about sustainability of open source 
that is one way to solve the problem. It's not the only way to solve the problem, but it does generate a lot of resources to maintain the project. Earlier you said at the fund, we're all about open source. We require maintainers to maintain their project. We require businesses to maintain their open source projects. What do you mean when you say open source there? Because open source is ultimately just a licensing method. So what are you talking about when you say we're all about open source? Well, um, I would say that I, I don't want to overstate because I'm a lawyer, right? So I, I always want to be precise about things, right? Um, That's why I'm asking you, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, so we, it's a mean question. So um, yeah. no, no, it's a perfectly value, valid question. Our thesis is we only invest in commercial open source software. So that means something under an open source license, Apache, yep. AGPL, GPL, that's there's not MIT, there's not many others that you would use, right? So the business has to have their core product under that license. Now, of course, companies use things like source available licenses and all sorts of variations, and that's fine, right? But the core technology has to be open source. Now, the reason I'm, you know, stuttering a little bit here <laughs> is that when you get outside the bounds of what is strictly software, it can get a little difficult to tell what open source is, like data, like yep. uh, crypto. We don't really do crypto, but you know we've got a couple of portfolio companies that are loosely involved with crypto, right? Or data or hardware, right? So when you ask what is open source X, or AI for that matter, you know, there's the elephant in the room. When you ask what is open source hardware, data, AI, et cetera, that's actually a very difficult question to answer from a doctrinal point of view. And we are trying to figure out that out, particularly with respect to AI, like everybody else is. In fact, we are heavily involved in efforts to try to define what open source AI is because we don't think that the definitions out there are sufficient. Well, there really isn't one, but but we are very concerned that there be an appropriate definition. So that gets a little difficult because when you say, what is open source? It can be a hard question to answer for stuff that is not software, but it's if it's software, it's an easy answer. It's something under GPL, Apache, MIT, you know, Mozilla, AGPL, you know, like, top six licenses or so. That's all it is. When you talk about the efforts you're involved in, do you mean the OPA, the Open Policy Alliance as well? No, we are supporting the open source initiatives effort to do a definition, yeah. but we also wrote our own because, well, just because that's how we roll, <laughs> um, <laughs> called the Open Weights definition, which is cool. on GitHub. You can look it up, comment on it. We tried to write a definition because when we're investing in AI, we want to know what it means to be open source AI. It's, it's important to our thesis. And I won't, you know, won't go on and on about this, but I think it's also extremely important for the world to understand what it is for AI to be open and transparent is absolutely essential. I would agree. Heather, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about your book. It's really, really exciting. Is there anywhere where people can go and buy it? It's on Amazon. I I uh, I publish through Amazon because I'm self-published. 
So it's available in Kindle and paperback forms on Amazon. I hope to do an audiobook soon, but that probably requires me to have a little bit of quiet time, maybe over the holidays to narrate it. So hopefully it will be on Audible sometime next year. But right now you can buy it on Amazon.com. That's great. We'll have the links for that in the show notes. Where can people find your work in general online? Do you have a website? My website is heathermeeker.com. On there, you'll find like my blog. You'll find a whole bunch of stuff about me, you know, the usual self-promotion and so forth. I also do a series of videos on YouTube and those are called Heather Thinks About Software. It's And that's a little bit less about law and licensing and a little more about what's happening in the tech world. Uh, and they are, shall we say, a little on the sardonic side. Um, so they're intended to be hopefully entertaining and informative. And I tackle different topics that just come up on my news feed usually. So I've got that video series now. Now I'm kind of trying to mesh the video and the blog so that they're they are harmonized and they're not cannibalizing each other, which was something that was happening. So that's those are the easiest ways to find me. I'm, of course, on the service formerly known as Twitter and LinkedIn. So it's it's I'm super easy to find. And those links will be in the show notes as well. All right. Now it's time for the ending part of the show, Spotlight, where we highlight projects, people, places, things, which we feel just need a little bit more light shed on them. So today, following the longstanding tradition that I've started using, which is just the last book I've read that was useful, I'm going to just highlight again Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Really like this book. I'm rereading it now for the third or fourth time. And uh, every time I read it, I get different things out of it. So highly suggest taking a crack at it. I know it is about the Holocaust, so it's incredibly dense and somewhat dark, but it's actually very rewarding as a read. And I never find that I'm actually depressed afterwards. It's more the other way around. So highly suggest Man's Search for Meaning. Heather, what's your spotlight today? Can I choose a few things? Sure. (laughs) Well, I wasn't... You know, originally thinking of saying this, but you reminded me, there's a there's an author I love, his name is Primo Levi, and he wrote about the Holocaust. And those books are weirdly some of the most uplifting things I've ever read in my life. I mean, when a, a friend first, first recommended them to me, I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember the exact, one is I think called Surviving Auschwitz. The other was called the the periodic table, I think, because he was mm. a chemist. And when my friend recommended them to me, I thought, I don't really want to read something about the Holocaust. It's like depressing, you know, but they were just amazingly uplifting in a in a kind of a weird way. You know, it's just like the the power of people to survive in horrible circumstances. I really loved those books. As to kind of other books, there's actually a a book that is a really old book by now called Games Mother Never Taught You. And this is a book for women and how to succeed in business. And I read that book when I was in my early 20s, and I have never forgotten it. It just was so 
helpful. And I still see things that that author talked about every single day when I'm dealing with business. As to an open source project, my favorite one of all time is Audacity, which is a digital audio workstation. I had the privilege of representing the founders of that project when they sold their rights to a company because they wanted to retire, basically, and they couldn't uh, maintain the project anymore. That is just the most awesome project ever. If you're a musician, you probably already know about it, but I'm a musician and I've been using it for years. And it's just, to me, it's a quintessential example of a, a perfect open source project. It's like works great, has a huge community, great documentation. It doesn't have feature bloat. You know, it's just like totally awesome project. And I love it. And I was a big, also, I was a big user of it before I represented those guys when they called me. And I, I said, I, I was like, I would have done anything to represent them. Like I would have done it for free and almost did it for free. Right. But I just like love the project so much. I also love audacity. It's amazing. I also pay for Adobe's audition and uh-huh. the majority of the time audacity is actually easier to use yes. and just works better. So that, it's like, that's okay. what's great about open source. Like it doesn't have feature bloat and that is a perfect example of it. That is why open source based products are better because proprietary companies have to keep adding features that not that most people don't want in order to sell yep. more products right and that doesn't happen with open source software it happens occasionally with open source for instance you may have noticed this is a video call and we're doing this because we thought it might reach more listeners and so we're curious if you actually watch this on the video if you did you could let us know This is my segue into the closing text, by the way. You can tune out appropriately at this point. Let us know by emailing podcast at sustainoss.com. Be really excited to have any thoughts about this format, about whether you watch it online or about whether you enjoyed the podcast in general. Also, you can suggest guests and so forth or complain. Feel free to complain. If you like this as well, Open Source Collective is where you can support more sustained podcasts. We produce over 200 of them, and we would like to actually make more money so we can continue to make more. So please go on and donate if you could. Share it with your friends. Like us on Apple, Spotify, and so forth, wherever podcasts are bought and sold. And once again... Heather, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to come and talk about your book. I hope From Project to Profit by Heather Meeker with two E's goes really well and people go on Amazon and buy it and keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was really great talking to you and I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast.